Melody Thomas. And I'm Tony Stamp. And this is Pop Culture, the podcast exploring themes and iconic characters of popular culture and the contexts in which they came to be made. Each episode is kind of spearheaded by one of us, and today's is brought to you by Tony. So, Tony. Indeed. Today's topic is a, a bit of a tricky one. We started out wanting to talk about the state of on screen diversity, be that people of colour, women, LGBT. Uh, differently abled people and so on. But as we were making it, we noticed something, which is that while things do seem to be improving in that department, and there's been a lot of media coverage saying as much, it's a more complex issue than you might possibly think. Mm. Maybe a good starting point is a movie that was heralded as a big step forward for diversity in Hollywood recently, which was Crazy Rich Asians. The Nick you're dating is Nick Young? Yeah, you guys know them or something? Hells yeah. They're just the biggest developers in all of Singapore. Damn, Rachel. It's like the Asian Bachelor. So when this came out, we noticed a really strong positive reaction from Asian New Zealanders. Aaron Yap wrote on flix.co.nz that for an Asian audience, particularly for Chinese immigrants who are stuck between two worlds, so to speak, Crazy Rich Asians can be a deeply personal event, powerful enough to trigger bouts of uncontrollable weeping. Which I guess if you have seen the film and aren't in that audience, maybe would be surprising because it probably mm. seems like kind of a light extravaganza, but... Yeah, I thought exactly the same thing. And Lucy Z, who makes content for TVNZ's RE, tweeted, I went to a screening of Crazy Rich Asians hosted by the Pan-Asian Screen Collective. And for the first time in a long time as a Kiwi Asian, I felt like I belonged in a public space. I didn't once need to defend why I was here. Mm. It was wonderful. And I wanted to cry when I got home. So we were intrigued by this. And I visited Lucy at her work to get more of her perspective. With that tweet, it was nothing to do with the movie at all. Mm. The movie just helped facilitate that gathering. The whole point was for PASC, Pan-Asian Screen Collective, was that there are so many of us, but we all still feel like we don't belong. And it's really hard for us to get work and stuff or to fit in. Does it make sense? It makes perfect sense. It's just super bleak that that is still the feeling that you get in 2018 yeah for me like after I was like yeah the movie's amazing got home and I was like but you know what actually what I'm feeling is I got to hang out with a whole bunch of people that I hadn't even met before they were just Asian and I felt comfortable not once did I feel like oh I don't belong here because I go to like a lot of screenings and stuff and you know as most of us do in this like funny Auckland scene um (laughs) Like, you know, you always run into someone. I think I've seen you at, like, screenings yeah. and stuff. And you always feel a little bit like, oh, Matilda Rice is here. But she's, like, a celebrity, and I'm not. What am I doing here? It's not even just about being, like, not popular. It's also about being seen as, like, like what are you doing here? Were you invited just because you dot, 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 mm-hmm. fill in a diversity thing? Or right. your friends or someone, not because, you know, you appreciate or have influence as a person of colour. Years ago, when I finished uni, I got invited to this, like, Hong Kong Film Commission lunch. Mm. And because I've been working, making short films, and I've been, like, nominated for awards and stuff for my writing back in the day. And I got there, and this girl was like, oh, did you only get invited because you're Asian? And I was like, no, I got invited because I'm a good writer. Stuff like that happens constantly. Say I was to go to an action film 
or whatever, someone mm. might go, what are you doing here? Mm. And I was like, how do I answer that? What am I doing here? I got invited because someone thought I might like the movie. Mm-hmm. And you don't know if they're going, what are you doing here? Because this is a movie about a white dude, like, punching cars. And it's like, because I'm Asian, you're assuming that I don't like watching white dudes punching cars, but if it was an Asian dude punching cars, I don't know. I, was, I, don't, I don't know what guys do with cars. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's that's how I feel when I go to events, is that if I'm somewhere and I'm not the majority, yeah. I'm, like, in a way, asked, what am I doing here? Whereas when I went to this screening, didn't get that at all. Didn't feel that at all. At all. We were all here to see, like, the first movie in, like, what, 20 years that it was a full Asian cast. It's a good thing, and I love it, but it doesn't mean that it's enough. One movie out of how many movies were released this year from Hollywood that aren't full Asian casts, mm. you know? It's just kind of, it's not enough yet. If I want to watch a film that's just about the experience of being in a, like growing up Asian in a Western country, what have I got to choose from? Mm. Crazy Rich Asians, Joy Luck Club, and maybe Rush Hour, too. <laughs> <laughs> it it cuts a little bit deeper Yeah, I when bet. you recognise yourself visually, physically, and someone else as well. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I, I guess. I don't know, because I've, like... Like, do you cry every time... Um, I see a white dude. <laughs> see a white dude on screen? Like, punching cars. Punching cars. <laughs> But that's the thing, right? Like, I totally have well, taken maybe it for granted. You take it for granted. That's the point. Yeah. I guess if I grew up my entire life seeing, you know, Asian-American, Asian-New Zealand woman on screen, I'd be like, yeah, this is normal. This is regular. But it's not for me yet. Isn't it interesting that for Lucy, and I'm assuming for a lot of others as well, it was as much about the movie itself as it was the experience of watching it in a room full of people where you fit I read similar things from people of colour in the States watching Black Panther and Black Klansman and Sorry to Bother You, Get Out. And then TV shows like Insecure and Atlanta and Random Acts of Flyness. Like, there's a lot of those same responses coming from those shows and those movies. Before we leave, Lucy, it's worth mentioning that, you know, she doesn't think Crazy Rich Asians is perfect. The film isn't unproblematic. There's so many things in the movie. It's still a movie about rich people. It's still a movie about skinny, attractive people mm. and the exclusion of, like, Southeast Asians. Mm-hmm. There's, like, you see some Southeast Asians and they're used as, like, a scene where someone's really scared. They're like, oh, my God, it's a brown face. That's oh. what I took from that one scene, which is like, oh, my God. You, you can't look at something and go, oh, yeah, we're, we've, done, made, we've made it. No, you have to look at something and be like, okay, well, we've kind of made mistakes here and we're going to keep progressing. We're going to try to make one that isn't problematic mm. and is, you know, for the lack of a better term, woke. At this point, I feel like we should probably explain the term woke that Lucy is referring to. So it was actually coined by Erica Badu in her song Master Teacher and later became a term in African-American vernacular to explain, you know, an awareness of racial justice or social justice more generally. You know, like, you need to stay woke, you need to stay aware of the stuff that's going on in society if society is going to progress. Yeah, it's a word that came up a lot in coverage of pop culture in 2018 about Mm. this increase in diversity. The Cut published an article by Molly Fisher called Pop Culture's Great Awakening. It's very clever. 
citing a whole lot of films and TV as evidence that quote-unquote identity politics had infiltrated mainstream entertainment for the better. The Guardian asked, is the awakening a movement or a moment? Mm. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it's true or it seems true that there's been a a bunch of great movies made expressly for women or for people of colour or for queer audiences like Wonder Woman and The Big Sick and Moonlight, which were celebrated for diversity or Get Out for critiquing race in the United States and even TV shows like Glee and Riverdale that have some really great queer storylines. But there's also backlash. If you were Mm, to look at all the columns and think pieces and outrage tweets about PC gone mad, and I don't know, you know, maybe they're not using that phrase, but it's the same thing, then the impression that you get is that every movie and TV show and song now is made for a quote-unquote minority audience. There's a lot of those outrage tweets, particularly when it comes to these big blockbusters. There's a lot of vitriol online that I've seen, you know, predominantly from white men who think that For example, recasting Ghostbusters as women is going to bring about the fall of Western civilization. I mean, I've seen people literally say that. And destroy their childhoods. Just as a brief aside, I remember being on air on Music 101 with Kirsten Johnstone once, and we happened to play a lot of music in an hour that was from women and from queer women, and we got a number of texts, and one of them actually said, where's all the straight music gone? (laughs) Amazing. It's still here, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's not that hard to find. There's also been this disproportionate reaction online when, uh, for example, a black lead was cast in the new Star Wars films, or even when Mad Max Fury Road had this, you know, reasonably mild feminist subtext. Mm. It's interesting because stories about minorities have existed for decades. It's not like these are new stories, but... There is definitely a feeling at the moment that maybe they might start to overshadow what's been the status quo. And I don't think that's true. Like in our queer representation episode, we find out that actually, you know, all this concern about queer characters on TV is really like it's misguided because actually queer representation, especially in film, is down. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And the status quo is pretty healthy as Mm. far as I can tell. (laughs) To complicate things further, there's an increasing amount of performative wokeness. Which we could probably be called out for doing right now. We wanted to speak to someone about quote-unquote wokeness on screen, so I reached out to a film and TV critic I'm a huge fan of, Angelica Jade Bastian, who is Afro-Latina, writes for New York magazine, and is very vocal about issues of representation on screen. I talked to her over Skype in her home in Chicago. Listen closely, you can hear the train going past her window. It's actually funny that we're having this conversation because right now I'm writing a review of the new version of Charmed. And they've been very interesting in how they've marketed it. If you look at the list of producers, there's about three or four white women and then the rest are white men. Mm -hmm. And the show has really marketed itself and set itself apart from the original incarnation by talking about diversity and talking about how it's going to speak about sisterhood. And in the show, the three sisters are supposed to be Latina, and they all have different fathers. So the eldest half-sister is an Afro-Latina. Mm-hmm. What's funny about this is that the casting does not reflect what the characters are supposed to be. Mm. So the eldest sister is actually of Afro-Caribbean, specifically Jamaican, and Caucasian descent. The youngest sister, again, is supposed to be a Latina, but she's actually not. She's actually a very light-skinned black woman who's also of indigenous Canadian descent. 
and she personally identifies as African American. Only mm. one of the actresses cast, Melanie Diaz, is actually Latina. Mm. So when you see a show like that, the writers are very obviously name checking a lot of feminist dialogue. Pro-choice is used in the pilot. You see one character stapling a Time's Up poster. So it's very much trying to tap into the moment. What we're seeing is that producers and people in power in Hollywood are co-opting the language of resistance, basically. And they're using it as a marketing technique. And it is so craven. (laughs) It's hilarious to me. It's insulting. Mm. What we're seeing now is that big studios are putting a lot of money behind it. Mm. We're seeing, like you said, Black Panther, Crazy Rich Asians. There's a lot going on where we're seeing that in big blockbuster films. But I will admit I'm very cynical about how that is happening and Mm. what kind of on-screen representation we're getting, who we're seeing making these films, what they say, I feel that it's very craven in many ways, like seeing the way, say, feminist politics have been co-opted to sell a show like, let's say, The Handmaid's Tale, Mm -hmm. which I have kind of railed against since its first season. So I didn't follow up with Angelica on that last point, which quite rightly... (laughs) annoyed you in my defense we were running out of time but i forgive you i've since read a bunch of her reviews and i think her grievances are best summed up by this quote okay the handmaid's tales silence on race grows more awkward as the show goes on particularly in light of its marketing as a politically astute salve for these troubled times and the girl power inflected feminism destined to launch a thousand t-shirts with clever wordplay. In reality, though, it's more concerned with the interiority of white women at the expense of people of colour who recognise that Gilead isn't a possible horrifying future, but the reality of what America has always been. Yeah, Yeah, that's, I mean, that's full on. That's totally, totally right. Mm. Tell me something. What do you know about Wakanda? So what did she have to say about Black Panther? I'm really curious to know, because from the outside, that's another one that I imagine, you know, it looks like it's been really celebrated as a runaway success. It smashed Mm. the box office, was embraced and celebrated by black audiences in the States, as far as I could tell. What was her take Mm. on that? Her take was characteristically complicated. I think the reason why it resonated so well, specifically within an African-American context, One was because there is sort of this interest in imagining that the legacies that were stolen from us with regards to slavery Mm. were we were all kings and queens. Mm -hmm. So this idea of royalty is very tantalizing. For me, I've never really been attracted to this idea that maybe, you know, my ancestors were kings and queens. I highly doubt they were. (laughs) And that's okay. I come from a family of meager beginnings uh, and I have ancestors who were slaves and I am proud of where I come from and I don't need a crown on my head to be proud of my blackness. So I think there's this idea that there's something valuable in reimagining us as royalty. But then I think there's also something weird with Black Panther because, you know, it's imagining the super advanced African nation untouched by colonialism 
and has a weird relationship with their African brethren who are not from Wakanda specifically. So it's it's a sort of strange movie mm. with regards to its politics. It was fun, but the most interesting character, in my opinion, is the one played by Lupita Nyong'o, and I would have rather hmm. have seen her as a Black Panther figure or Shuri, T'Challa's sister, who has become Black Panther in the comics before. But, right. of course, they would never do that because <laughs> that would be a little bit too much for Marvel. They're slowly but surely trying to be quote-unquote diverse, which is a word I don't even like to use. What's a better word to use than diversity? Should we be saying representation? Oh, God, all these words are, like, just terrible <laughs> because they become such weird talking points and they feel yeah. so shallow. Yeah. And it's also weird because you'll sometimes hear producers saying we have a very diverse cast or this person is diverse. And I'm like, I'm a person, not, I don't know, a rug at world market or whatever. Like, you know, these words that people are using are kind of strange to describe people and experiences. Maybe inclusion is a better term. Okay. As in you're including not just characters, but writers, directors, cinematographers, producers. Mm. You kind of have to start things on multiple levels. So just to set up this next bit, Wesley Morris is an African-American critic in the States, and he wrote a piece for the New York Times about this climate where people are becoming more aware of issues around inclusion And in it, he worries that culture is being evaluated for its moral correctness more than for its quality. So in response to that, Angelica assembled a roundtable of non-white critics. I read the the panel discussion that was in Vulture. You were talking about Wesley Morris's article that essentially was saying that, that he's worried that work is now evaluated more for its moral correctness than quality. I thought it was a really interesting discussion that came out of that. One thing Jasmine Sanders said uh, is that she she said it feels like we're in an era where everything black is being called amazing. Black Klansman, (laughs) sorry to bother you. And your response to that was we're in a strange era in which everything black is being considered amazing out of some odd corrective measure. But guess what? Black people can make trash too. That that's really uh, at odds with with some of the things that have been said in the media about you know uh, those movies and uh, Get Out I suppose and and Black Panther. I have gotten a lot of weird heat for huh. critiquing beloved black shows and films. Like one thing I've been doing a lot this year was talking about how I didn't think Issa Rae's HBO show Insecure mm-hmm. was all that good. Mm-hmm especially this recent season. And it's interesting because I feel that you're expected, at least me as an Afro-Latina critic, to very much support anything Black or Latina related. Sure. Because it's, it's this idea that, oh, like, we may not get another chance. And, you know, if you don't support this, then you're kind of stopping years of progress from happening and i'm like god i'm sorry i'm a critic you know it, it it's a strange experience and to see studios just so glaringly marketing themselves as woke and it's like no you're not and even stars like the stars are doing it too it's really fascinating seeing a white actor like army hammer talk about his whiteness which is what was going around with the Sorry to Bother You press. 
very interesting time we're living in. I don't think we're making as much progress as people want to believe we are, mm -hmm. but we are in a state of flux. I'll say that. It's worth pointing out, Melody, that in Angelica's Twitter bio, she calls herself a witch. And Great. that ties into our next little feature. We've been giving each other assignments for each episode. And for this one about wokeness, we thought you could check out a TV show that got quite a bit of buzz for having some strong feminist themes. It's a show about witches. Good night, Harvey. Good night, Sabrina. I'm going to be talking about Netflix's new series, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Mm, and there's a reason that we've chosen this particular series to talk about. Not just because witches are amazing and I'm just <laughs> always excited to talk about them, but because The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina is just bubbling over with wokeness. Um, in fact, there was an interview that the star of the show, Kenan Shipka, did where she described her version of Sabrina Spellman, who is the main character, as woke. So says it's woke, looks woke yet to be determined if it is legitimately woke, we will see. <laughs> because, yeah, it is heavily marketing itself uh, on that fact, like some of the other things that we've been talking about in this episode. I mean, and every buzzword you could ever imagine associated with intersectional feminist wokeness mm. is is in the show, and mm. especially in that first episode, they're kind of all there, which got me really excited at the beginning, but then largely because I'm easily influenced and I read a lot of stuff online, I started to wonder how much substance there was underneath that. So the struggles around her dark baptism, which is when she has to choose whether she's going to sign her name in the Book of the Beast, which is the devil's book, which is where all witches in this world have to sign their name. And the conversations that happen around her having to give away her autonomy and, you know, mm. all of that is very much the same conversation that's happening around consent. And the consent messages I have really enjoyed and found to be done really well. Like at one point she kind of backs out on a quote-unquote promise to the Dark Lord to sign her name in the book mm. and goes on trial for it. And the trial... I mean, pretty much mirrors the kinds of trials that we see real survivors and real, you know, people who have actually gone through the trauma of sexual abuse and assault mm. go through. She's, you know, she's tried for what she was wearing. She's, oh, wow. you know, yeah, it's amazing. And it's quite, it makes it quite difficult to watch. But it also really hammers home the fact that this is a young, strong woman just trying to maintain control and possession of her own body in a world where other people and, I guess, mostly men in the patriarchy want to take control of it from her. You know, it's a show about witches and demons and mortals, but it's also not shy about what it's really exploring. Mm. Sabrina and her friends start a group for women called WICA, which stands for Women's Intersectional <laughs> Cultural and Creative Association. Yeah, that, that actually happens really early into the first episode, that storyline. Yeah. And it was like right from the word go, they're kind of wearing their heart on their sleeve because it starts when she is standing up for... A character that I actually was kind of confused about. Yeah, the way I've seen Susie described is as non-binary. And, right. and I mean, I kind of like that that confusion exists because it means that it's not explicitly stated, which is great because I think mm. it doesn't need to be. You know, sure. she, Susie doesn't come out and say, I am non-binary. Although, <laughs> obviously, you know, the reason that this group is formed is because Susie is, is getting bullied for their gender expression. And, and so it is addressed, just maybe not explicitly stated. Yeah. 
when they're setting up that group, there's this line about, you know, what the group is forming for. And it's, uh, you know, they say it's to meet and topple the white patriarchy. <laughs> like, yeah. It's right there in the, in the dialogue. It's... Really early as well in episode one. It's like no yeah. mucking around. This is what we're doing. Exactly, and that's why I was so excited at this point. <laughs> the cast is also really diverse. I've read an interview with one actress of colour on, in the series who is talking about being on set and hearing, you know, one of her fellow castmates talking Korean to mm-hmm. her family and someone else speaking Spanish to their mother on the phone and just all these languages around because the cast is so diverse and, and how great it is to work in that environment. And there are also so many reviews and articles out there from real-life witches and practitioners of witchcraft reacting to it. And again, that's really mixed. I don't know if right. you've seen them. I've seen smatterings, um, yeah, for and against. It's so great, isn't it, that we're getting... <laughs> it's like, this isn't made for you, this is made for witches, let's get some witches out here to, to review it. I mean, it's not actually... It's made for everyone, but... Well, probably not religious people, given how many times they say praise Satan throughout the series. Are you willing to forsake the path of light and follow the path of night? So the chilling adventures of Sabrina... Melody, woke or broke? I feel like for me it was a real journey where I (laughs) followed an arc of initially, you know, presenting as super woke, getting me really excited, slowly breaking over the course of uh, the first season. And now I'm hoping that because there's been some public reaction Mm. um, and maybe some ideas thrown about as to how the series could improve that Mm -hmm. in going into season two, we can build up to woke again. So the term woke, as you described it earlier, and as Erica Badu set out for us, started out with a very specific meaning, and it was very specific to black American experiences and communities. But it's been co-opted, and its meaning's changed, you know, like so much African-American slang is Mm. co-opted. It's lit. And <laughs> please don't ever say that again. And the, <laughs> and the way it's used now is, is, you know, if you're woke, you're clued up, you're hip to inequalities when it comes to structures of power and who benefits from them, mm. plus, you know, environmental issues and the divide between rich and poor, or the general sense of unease that's felt by a lot of millennials or anyone that's younger than a certain age. Yeah, that's right. And it isn't just entertainment companies that have sort of latched onto this. It's also advertisers. Oh, You made me think of the Pepsi ad with Kendall Jenner. If, if people haven't seen this ad, I mean, probably everybody's seen it and anyone that now studies how not to do advertising will study this ad in which Kendall Jenner joins a protest that's kind of modelled on the Occupy movement that was happening at the time, and diffuses the whole situation with a can of Pepsi delivered to a law enforcement officer at an opportune time. Like it was so obviously riding on something that was actually important and using it as a way to bank dollars that it was, I don't think it stayed out in public for long. Mm. And then on the other side of things, I guess there's the Nike commercial with Colin Kaepernick that has been, you know, that's an example of, I guess, for the most part, I haven't seen a whole lot of criticism about it. I've only seen praise. And that's, you could probably say that's what happens when it's done properly. I mean, there was a small amount of pushback because Nike still are, you know, a commercial entity and they are trafficking on issues around race to sell 
shoes and mm. clothes. But just Colin Kaepernick's presence was seen as a political act because he famously refused to stand for the American national anthem in protest over police brutality targeted at black Americans. Mm. So we'd been chatting about these things in advertising and you suggested I check out a Wellington agency called Double Denim. Yeah, so they build themselves as a gender intelligence consultancy and creative agency and they talk about helping businesses to understand the power of the female economy and the women Mm. who run it, Anna Dean and Angela Meyer, are friends of mine. Everything they do has a gendered lens to it. And to back up their ideas about the power of the female economy, they did this huge piece of research about the economic and personal lives of New Zealand women, which informs all of their campaigns. As an example, they discovered that women make 80% of consumer purchasing decisions. So not tiny. They also, I believe as part of what they do, you know, if they're signed up to a client to run a campaign, will work with that client to look at the structures within the company to make sure that they, you know, they'll ask them about their gender pay gap, that kind of thing, to make sure that they're not going to put out a quote-unquote woke ad and then be called out for not having woke practices. So I got in touch with Anna and Angela from Double Denim to learn about that mission statement and get some sort of practical examples of how they're combating gender stereotypes. The first voice you're going to hear is Anna's. We would like to be respected and kind of shown different modes of being rather than these kind of tropes that get rolled out yeah, time and time I mean, again. There's, there's kind of eight tropes in advertising that women are pretty much subjected to eight or tropes. put into. Eight tropes, okay. eight major tropes. I'll give you a couple. So there's there's the um, the kind of selfless nurturer. And this woman is often portrayed with, for example, getting a giant chicken out of a out of an oven with this <laughs> joyful look on her face, like, yeah. oh, my God, I cooked a chicken. Wearing an apron. Yeah. Wearing an apron. Um, here's my family. I'm so proud to serve. Yeah, I, mm. I just love that. There's also um, the kind of domestic obsessive. And so this is someone who's unnaturally energised by cleaning, cleaning things, um, yeah. and which is a very, very strong trope. And that can sometimes either be, like, enthusiasm beyond the, you know, off the charts for cleaning the loo, or it can also kind of manifest itself in, um, in kind of, like, surgical uh, precision. Someone wearing a white coat with this idea of, like, I am checking the pH level of the toilet. Right. So enthusiastic am I for cleaning? You know, then there is, of course, the bit part. And so mm-hmm. this is the kind of pretty woman, you know, beautiful woman who could easily not be in the ad, but is in the ad. So sometimes mm-hmm. you see that. I, I saw one the other day, actually, for um, a tile company. And we just needed to see the tiles, but there was a sort of a scantily clad woman lying across the tiles. And I'm like, why is there a half-naked woman lying on the tiles? You know, we don't need to see that. We just need to know about mm. the tiles. Mm. And so there's a number of these tropes that uh, have been around for as long as advertising's been around and actually are really pervasive. And what that means is that if you don't see yourself or you, you don't see different representations, then you can't be it. Something like that, like the woman on the tiles, you know, that sounds like something you might have seen in an ad in the 60s. Why do you think these tropes 
are still around. There is this belief that that is the way to sell things, that sex mm. sells. And mm. I suppose our whole sort of raison d'etre is that there's other ways to sell things. And when you put women's uh, ideas and needs into the mix when you're creating something, then we also know that women are really motivated by value for money. So I would suggest that, you know, for a tile company, you'd be saying something like, look at these tiles, look how great they are. Maybe they're marble tiles, they're really good value. Mm. And I would I would argue that you would sell heaps more tiles than having <laughs> a half-naked woman on yeah. this tiles because men are not buying tiles for the house. Women mm. are doing this. You know, they're making these purchasing decisions. So mm. it's kind of like have a bit of respect for the people who are, in fact, mm. making these decisions. And Brains, not boobs. Yeah, mm. exactly. So I mean, boobs are okay sometimes, yeah. but, you know. <laughs> sure. Not all the time. Before the interview, I'd talked to Anna uh, just over the phone about this idea of performative wokeness being used in marketing, and boy, was she keen to talk about it. We do see so much advertising that is on this bandwagon now. There's the future is female message that was up on a shoe shop, and I was talking <laughs> right. to someone. I was talking to someone about it. And I was like, it's like there's this kind of tokenistic wokeness. And I was like, ah, yes. Uh, we were laughing. We were like, it's wokenistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> woken. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, that that's definitely a thing that's happening. And we're obviously not interested in participating in that. It's very similar to what we've seen with greenwashing with the environmental space. And, and people okay. are, you know, they have really mm. woken up to that. And we're at the beginning of this new phase where... Gender and diversity are becoming the trendy thing. Uh, used to be sustainability, and um, you know, so it's it's always just hoping that people are aware and not taken advantage of. Mm. And as you said before, Anna, you know, there are ways to check how diverse an organisation is. So maybe you see uh, an ad that's got lots of diversity, you know, lots of different faces, etc., in it, and then a small click to go and look at the board of that place uh, might suggest otherwise. So the cynicism, you know, people are able very quickly to say, to call people out and to say mm. this is not, this doesn't actually ring true. I read this um, great quote one time saying, we're not all born woke. Well, actually, I think we are born woke and then we're conditioned through our society. But by no means do I think we've we've nailed it at all, you know. But yeah, I think if you're open to actually having a conversation and realizing mm-hmm. that you're you're every day you're mm-hmm. having to kind of decolonize your mind. <laughs> yes. Or yes. you know, mm. then totally. and then recognizing your own really yeah, recognizing your own privilege is the key point of that, and it does and your own biases. Yeah. We started this episode as a response to some of the things that we'd seen happening in the United States and, you know, the media responding again to those things. But it's not like we're not guilty of many of these offences ourselves. So it's important that we speak to someone with a local perspective on issues around inclusion. So to talk about some of these things, I reached out to Pua Wai Kens, mm. who is a board member for the Pantograph Punch, has written for the spin-off. She's also worked in the arts as a creative director and for Creative NZ. And she now works at Te Papa, overseeing research and curatorial practice for the Taonga Māori collection. Yeah, Pua Wai is fantastic. She's amazing. And Pua Wai reiterated to me that 
you know, this is not a black and white issue. It's a very complex one. These kinds of interrogations, this exploration you're doing, you can have a tendency to be quite black and white. That stuff is bad. This stuff is good. Mm-hmm. Moana is shit. Um, <laughs> Black Panther is shit. Yeah. Uh, but if it's India, it's good. One of the things that I like to do is try and find agency in whatever platform is presented to me. Mm-hmm. And what comes with that instinct is a tendency to not consider one thing bad and one thing good. It's mm. that it becomes a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe not the best vehicle, mm-hmm. but it becomes a vehicle to tell stories. The idea for this episode came, uh, it was actually an article in The Cut that was literally called The Awakening. <laughs> I've since found a bunch of other articles that refer to this this thing, The Awakening. It's, it was even in The Guardian, Quillette, a few other publications. And it seems like the focus is on, is this a movement or is this a moment? The media, to use really broad terms, are sort of espousing this idea that pop culture in general is becoming more quote-unquote woke. What do, you, what do you make of that idea? I think as a person who has, who's always trying to push what would be considered minority content mm-hmm. out into the mainstream, movements like, you know, being woke or something are just, they're adaptations that you need to you need to go through. You need it's almost I don't know if you're a Star Trek person, but they've got these um baddies on there called the ball game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they always adapt to your defense mechanism or your attack. They'll find a way to absorb what you're doing and actually turn it around and flip it back at you. Mm-hmm. And when you're banging on the door of mainstream culture, in this case pop culture, mm-hmm. you have to constantly find vehicles. You have to f- constantly find defense or attack mechanisms mm-hmm. to get through that wall before it adapts to you and flips it back at you. Hmm. So I think without wanting to, I suppose, minimise or reduce what woke culture actually means to Hmm. African-American people, Hmm. it is what I see as an ongoing series of mechanisms that you use to break down walls, to have people hear you. I'm cynical when I see magazines like Vanity Fair and... I suppose, pop culture snapshot type of publications using woke and starting to interrogate it or kind of flip it around and Mm. maybe become a little bit cynical about it. That to me is just another way that mainstream culture adapts to minorities Mm. trying to break through that door. Mm. They adapt and they flip it back at you. Mm. I mean, just what kind of happened with Me Too, you know? So I don't know if it's a movement or a moment. I see it as an ongoing series of tools that have been used, sometimes reused, in order to break down walls. A lot of people have said to me, making this episode, they're like, you know, history's not a straight line, dude. No, it's not. It's not. It's a series of tactics when you're you're not part of mainstream culture. Mm. Yeah, and this is a tactic, I see it. The article you wrote for the spin-off, you were talking about your work at uh, Te Papa curating exhibitions, and mm. a couple of quotes really jumped out at me. Um, one of them was, uh, you wanted to, to do things better, more inclusively, and reflect the enormous range of Māori experiences of Māori people living their culture in Aotearoa, past, present, and future. Mm. And you go on to talk about wanting to decolonize the language that you use in the exhibitions. For example, the word traditional is the vocabulary of Western ways of writing about and cataloguing Indigenous peoples. So is that a a sort of framework that we can look at our pop culture through? And is there a process of sort of 
decolonizing the archives of pop culture in a similar way. For sure. It's taken me a while to grapple with decolonization mm. and whether or not I'm I'm an adherent to it. Back in the day when I was at university, I thought decolonization was requiring me to become a pre-colonial Māori, mm. which is impossible. I've got French ancestry. I have got lots of different things that I do in my life that if I was to be stripped back and stripped away to become a pre-colonial Māori, I know I wouldn't be able to fulfil that. Mm. So I just think, oh, decol's asking too much. Mm. Until I came to a realisation that decol for me was about decentering institutional voices so that other voices could come through and also decentering what would be a monolithic or a monocultural Māori voice. Mm-hmm. So that's what I want to do in museums and what I think most Māori storytellers want to do is open up the wealth of what it is to be Māori and understanding that it's actually not a singular experience, it's plural. Mm. And when you're not the mainstream and you don't have lots of different platforms to tell multiple stories, that one shot out the gate has to carry a whole lot of promises, (laughs) has to carry a whole lot of potential. Mm. And that's a huge amount of pressure. It's huge pressure mm. when you're that one greenlit project <laughs> uh, and you have God. to put all of the hopes of your ancestors and all of the aspirations of your descendants into that one time out the gate. Mm. It's a lot to carry. Mm. I don't know if you followed like the debates, huge debates that happened mm. across the country about Moana, the Disney movie, right? Yes. So I just had my first child. She's about two years old, I was sick to my bloody bones of yeah. um, let it go, yes. frozen. My child always ate, let it go, let it go. I was like, oh, oh my yeah, God, yeah. someone come save me. And when I knew that Disney was doing a Moana, uh, was, was doing a Polynesian, mm. an imaginary Polynesian story, mm. I was like, oh, thank God, I don't have to listen to Scandinavian let it go anymore. <laughs> yeah. and I was like, give me some change, some variety. Heard that Taika had been working on the script and they were bringing in all these different people to work on it. But the debates that erupted Mm. were just so freaking fascinating. Mm. Just like we're allowing all of the Polynesian cultures to become fuel for this Disney Mm. mincer, this (laughs) mince meat maker. (laughs) Uh, And others like, well, I want my child to see, see brown people up on the screen and see themselves. I was going, but is it themselves or is that an imagine? That's an American imagination. Mm. So I actually found that far more helpful than the movie itself. The the, the level of um, discussion debate around it. and discussion. Mm. Yeah, there was no one Maori opinion on Moana, mm-hmm. and even seeing Moana now in in the Air New Zealand in the entertainment system when you're flying and you can listen to the Te Reo Maori version. I think I still think that's quite cool, but mm. I'm also distinctly aware of the commercialization and the kind of capitalist beast that's behind Disney mm. and its uh, never-ending hunger for these kinds of stories. Mm. And it is. It has put Polynesia through a mincemeat maker mm. and created palatable Polynesian sausages <laughs> <laughs> for, for an audience. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's, I have a love-hate relationship to that. With any opportunity to tell a Māori story anywhere... Yeah, you have to put a lot of hope <laughs> in that in that story to make sure it can tell everything that you need to tell. I just wanted to put one thing to you that 
sort of struck me as a bit of a flip side to some of the stuff that we're talking about. And that was Taika uh, when he made Thor, a movie about, you know, ostensibly sort of, what are they, Norse gods. He smuggled in the Tino Rangatiratanga colours um, into some of the spaceships mm. and like a really explicit anti-colonial message. And yeah. it kind of, you know, I know that that stuff wasn't in the script. I know that he brought that to the project. He was, it was like the reverse of the Borg um, metaphor. Do you know what I mean? Like he was yeah. kind of forcing them to, to meet him in some ways. Do you agree with that? Yeah. yeah. Have, have you seen it? Yeah. 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 He's, um, he's married to my cousin, Taika. And she's oh, right. fabulous in her own right. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, but I've never met him, so I just like to name drop him too. <laughs> but um, no, I think that's, that's one of the cool things when you become an indigenous person who has that privilege of making content that you think the mainstream is going to consume, mm-hmm. that this is a way, what I call, colonise them back. I think there's a lot more stuff in there that he's put in that in that movie that none of us have picked up on. And that's what I think is the coolest part about being the indigenous wizard, is that we will find ways to put Māori stories in your brain and you won't even know that they're Māori stories. Mm. The more taikas that are out there, the better. We need to have these diverse storytellers and story makers out there because the machine will always adapt to you Mm -hmm. to push you out. It doesn't like the indigenous organs in there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we need more taikas. Mm -hmm. He's just another another, um, Mm anti-rejection strategy for us. Just like woke. Woke is probably going to turn into something else because mainstream will always try and push it out. listening to Pop Culture, I'm Melody Thomas. I'm Tony Stamp. And you can subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify or any number of other podcast providers. And if you like what we do, leave a review. Next week, uh, you'll be leading the charge, Melody. What are we going to learn about? We're going to be looking at queer representation in pop culture. So is there more queer media now? How is it being received? Is it doing the communities that it is apparently targeting any favours? That kind of thing. Cool. See you next time. See you then.